Again, thank you so much for joining us, and I really do hope you guys all had a Merry Christmas, and that you got to rest a little bit, and it wasn't all just all just tiring. That's how Bree and I feel right now. It's just like, whoo, today was a lot, or yesterday was a lot, but it was it was good. It was good. So take some rest, whatever what time you have for us this season. So let's jump jump in this morning. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the word. I'm just gonna read through it in fullness, and then we're gonna kind of just dive in. And take it piece by piece this morning. Okay. So our, our text, there's Bibles around you if you need to grab some. It'll be up on the screen as well. It's going to be in John 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, verses 14 through 18. It says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us to open our eyes, open our hearts, to understand his word this morning. Father, that's our prayer, that, that you give us eyes and ears, that we can see your word clearly, that we can hear the Spirit speaking to us through your word, Father. We thank you and we trust you when you say, you tell us in the scriptures that this is God-breathed, that, that you have ordained every word that has gone into the scriptures, Father. So help us trust that, help us believe it, and help us know that these are the words to life. Would you speak through me this morning? Let me not utter a single thing that is contrary to your truth, Lord. And would you help us see your glory in a new and a more marvelous way this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we praise. Amen. So again, welcome. Um, If you weren't in the room, uh, my name is Josh. I'm actually the worship director here. So we're switching things up a little bit this morning, and I'm just so so honored, so privileged to take the responsibility to to get a teach in the Word this morning. And if you haven't been to church before, maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, thank you so much just for showing up and coming. And I want you to know we welcome all of the skepticism you bring. We believe that the fullness of truth and joy and freedom is found in this man, Jesus. And if we believe that, no question is off limits. There's no concern off limits. So bring those forward. We, we welcome those. And just thank you so much for um, trusting us with your time here this morning. So speaking of like meeting people, um, if you're trying to meet somebody, like how do you start that conversation? How does that relationship begin? Well, typically we start with questions, Right? A good start is, what's your name? That's a good place to start, right? And then we go into, where are you from, maybe? Or what do you do? That's kind of like the three, one, two, three-step questions that we ask when we're trying to meet somebody for the first time, right? And I think it's fascinating how from that first question, what's your name, to the third question, what do you do, the perception that we have of that person shifts, shifts quite a lot, right? What's your name? I mean, sure, perception can change there, right? But 
The third question, what do you do, almost always. Whether it's small or big, how we view that person and how people view us changes. So, to get to know me a little bit. So I'm from South Dakota, and and this change of perception has often happened in the second question, actually, where are you from? I didn't know this until I got out of South Dakota, but I guess there's, like, a lot of mystery around the northern states, right? So I'm living down south now, and when I was young, I played on this soccer team that would, that would travel around the country, right? So the, it was called South Dakota United. And the goal, the, the idea of this team was, let's take the, the players from all around the state that we think are playing at an elite level, and let's put them on one team, and we'll travel the country, and hopefully we do well. So it's like what you would think of, like, an all-star team. Now, I don't say that to be like, I was on an all-star team. <laughs> Remember, it's South Dakota United, Okay. To give you some perspective, the population of South Dakota is like 880,000 people for the state. The OKC Metro has 1.4 million people. Okay, so some perspective, like, right? So, yes, I played on this all-star team, but, I mean, they didn't really have a choice, right? Like, I had to get on the team. (laughs) You know, it's slim pickings up north, okay? But I played on this team, and we went to Vegas one time. We were playing in this tournament in Vegas, and it was awesome. We got to play... We played against a team from China. We got to watch a team from Ireland play, um, playing some local Vegas City teams. And uh, they, the kids came up to us, and they were asking us questions. And they said this question, where are you from? And I said, oh, we're from South Dakota. And instantly, there was this baggage around that. Like, he formed a perception of who I was. And I, I, kid, you, I kid you not, okay? It sounds like this is just an illustration for a sermon, but I promise this is real. He looked at me dead straight in my eyes and said, do you guys have electricity there yet? (laughs) And I knew in that moment, like, there's an opportunity here, right? There's an opportunity. I could be like, yeah, like, what are you talking about? Or I could milk it. And guess which one I did? Yeah, I milked it. And I just went, yeah, actually, we do. They just installed it last month. It's awesome. It's great. Like, this is a game changer, Right? This electricity thing is going to change the whole game. And then by the end of the conversation, we had convinced them we were still taking horse and buggies to school and stuff. It was good, right? But just a simple question, where are you from? And it changed the perception once I said South Dakota. Okay, here's another one. Right now, I'm in a unique season in my life because I'm a full-time teacher, right? And when I say that, I say, yeah, I'm teaching at um, Santa Fe South High School in South OKC. And when I say that, people go, that is so great. Oh, my goodness. That, that is awesome. And sometimes I even get like a thank you, like I'm teaching their kids. Like maybe I am. I don't know. But they're like, thank you. That is, that is awesome. And then I go, yeah, and I also work part-time at a church. And not always, but more often than you might think, I get a, oh, that, that's nice. Right? It's interesting, right? How, what you say, what you do can shift the perception. So how these initial greetings are answered, how we answer them, truly affects how we are seeing people and how we're seen. So when we get to the Gospel of John here, what he's doing, he's doing the same thing. He's answering the same questions. Who is this man? However, John does it in a much different way than the other Gospels. I would, I would argue all of the Gospels try to answer this question up front, right? Maybe it's a genealogy. 
Maybe it's the, the birth culture and the setting of what's happening at the time. Or maybe it is like the greatest theological thesis statement ever created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John takes a very different approach to answering this question, who is this man and what does he do? So he very intentionally writes it this way, because if you don't get the answer to this question right, everything else he could write, anything he could say to you and try and convince you of is for naught. What is this question? The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because if you don't understand this, and you don't understand his life, all, everything you're going to hear later about his life, you don't understand who he is at first, it won't matter. And John is writing with, with such a great foresight because once you do see those things, his life, his death, his resurrection, it will do nothing else but drive you back to the question, who is this man? Who is this man? So let's dig into verse 14. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. We're going to spend the majority of our time in this one verse this morning. We're going to talk through verses 18, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in this one verse because it's so rich and so full that I want to, to honor that and take the time to unpack it. So verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's pick this apart and start with the beginning. The Word became flesh. Now, it sounds really familiar, right? It sounds like John 1, 1 again, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word became flesh. I would say that he's, he's recapping his argument right here. Verses 1, so John 1, verse 1 through 18 is what we'd call the prologue, right? John is creating this thesis, this big thesis statement to say, this is why I'm going to write everything I'm about to write. This is my why. So hear this. So he's, he's taking what he did at the beginning, what we've heard the last couple weeks, and he's recapping it right now to finish the prologue. The word became flesh. So who was the word again? John 1.10 says this. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he was in it, but the world was made through him. The word became flesh. Colossians 1.16. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That is the word. And he became flesh. So think about this for a second. This is, I was building this. I just kept having this thought, and it was, it was bizarre to me. Even Mary was created by him. Even Mary was created by, and then we say something like that. I'm trying to give you like more insight into this mystery to get like, try and wrap our minds around it, and we can't do it. And, and this is really important. So if you don't get a lot from this morning, at least take this point too, because you don't have to understand the fullness of the mysteries of the faith. And in fact, you can't. That's why they're the mysteries of the faith. But you can and you must Repeat them to yourself. You don't have to understand the fullness of the mysteries of the faith, but you can and you must repeat them to yourself. Why? Because if you don't, 
eventually they become more and more stripped down, more and more divided to whatever you're holding on to is not truth anymore. If you only worship a God that you can fully comprehend, that you can fully explain, you're just worshiping your own creation. And and let me ask you this. We can't even handle our own messy lives, right? So how is a creation supposed to save us? How is our own creation supposed to save us? So again, speak the mysteries of the faith over and over to yourself. Repeat them and hold the tension in the scriptures when it says that the word became flesh. God became man is what what John is saying here. Fully man, fully God. Joel Beek is a professor and a pastor, and he has this quote that I thought was so good, and he says this. He says, the sheer magnitude of the incarnation is so incomprehensible that we can only borrow language from the Apostle Paul and say we see it as though through a mirror darkly. Describing the incarnation in human language is like painting a mountain on a grain of sand. We stand before this abyss of glory, and we know that we could never reach the bottom. I think that's good imagery for us. So in this infinite mystery, we hold fast to the scriptures. We sit in the tension that this man, Jesus, is fully man, fully God. There can be, there can be no empathetic high priest otherwise. There can be no payment for the debt of sin otherwise. The eternal word through whom and for whom all things were created became flesh. And flesh is a, is a really interesting word to use here, right? And I don't want to look past this, so I'm going to stop there as well. Flesh. It became flesh. See, I think when John says that word, he's trying to bring all of the baggage of what the word flesh means in the scriptures. He could have said this. He could have said, um, the word became human. The word became man right? There are words for that. But instead he said the word became flesh. Why? When we see the word flesh in scriptures, it's an often very contemptuous manner, right? Describing mankind's corrupted nature. That's not what it's doing here because we know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's not talking about his corrupted nature, but it is talking about this, this deep, despic- despicable manner that the God of glory descended into. He wants you to, to, to pick up all the baggage of flesh and look at it and contrast the great glory of the word from the beginning who created all things with the great miseries that man is subject to. He wants you to to feel the weight of that baggage. The word became flesh. And then it says, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. So dwelt here, um, the word there is tabernacled, right? So it means like pitched his tent. And I think pitching a tent is a good imagery for us because if I said, hey, I'm gonna pitch my tent right here, do you think that I'm setting up my permanent residence? No, it doesn't. We wouldn't say that. We, I mean, I don't use a tent as a permanent residence. If you are, talk to us afterwards. We'll help you out. A, pitching a tent is, is a, a temporary status, right? So the first helpful imagery here 
I think is that it gives us his image. The word, and we've, sorry, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's a temporary status to Jesus' ministry in his life here. However, there's another helpful reason. When I, when I first said it, I said tabernacled, right? That was the word. Now, it's not as clear to us today because we're not Israelites, but I'm sure you've heard the word tabernacle if you've been anywhere in a church for very long, right? It's the Old Testament language. So tabernacle, we, we think of the tabernacle. It was the place that the presence of God would dwell with the people of God, right? So when it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John here is once again saying over and over and over, this man is God. Let's look at Exodus just really quick to see the presence of God in the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34, 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So this is a holy place it's talking about. It's where the presence of God would dwell. John is saying, we have the presence of God before us. This man is God. And then it says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So glory. So after establishing all this, he brings up glory. And I think we use this word a lot as Christians, right? But if I said today, hey, could you describe glory to me? Could you tell me, like, what is that thing? Could you do it? I think the answer to that question is yes and no, right? Because in one sense, you can try and describe it. So let me try. Here's my attempt to, to describe or define glory. I would say glory is a way to try and describe all of God's attributes combined as they're in action. It's the feeling of the weight of all God has done. And even that, like, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with something there to, to give it, to do justice there. And even that just feels like it falls so short. It falls so short. John Piper has a, a helpful analogy when we talk about glory. He said it's kind of like you're trying to define the word beauty. So let's, let's take glory out for a second and say, Beauty versus a basketball, okay? So if I said, and if kids in the room, right, what, what does a basketball look like? You can jump in if you want to. What does a basketball look like? I see there. She's like, no, I'm not doing it. You would say maybe it's orange. Maybe it's a sphere. It's got rubber piping around it. It's nine-ish inches in diameter, right? It bounces when you push it down. People would run up and, a, up and down a court with it and put it through hoops, which used to be baskets. That's why it's a basketball. So I just gave you a brief explanation. And now, if you didn't know what a basketball was before, you could probably have some idea, right? You could have an image in your head of like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what a basketball would be. But now if I said beauty, it changes. He, John Piper says this. He says, there are some words in our vocabulary that we can communicate with, not because we can say them, but because we can see them. 
we can point. We can point to it and say, that's it. So if we are around each other enough, and we have the collective experience enough, and we see beauty, and we see glory enough together, and we're pointing together, so when it shows up, we say, that's it, that's it, right there. If we do that enough times, we have a common sense of what this means now, right? So it takes something that maybe we can't see, but we can point to. We cannot begin to adequately describe what God's glory is, but we can look to the scriptures to point there and say, that's it. So let's let the the scriptures help us visualize glory for a little bit. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's some, there's some idea of creation showing glory. And often when it physically manifests in the Bible, it comes as a blazing light through Scripture. So we have the cloud of fire for ancient Israel in Exodus 40. The cloud of fire was leading the people. There's a blazing light. And remember, Moses couldn't enter the, the, the tabernacle. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting when the glory of the Lord was there because he would be destroyed. He couldn't be in the presence of God. And he had learned that lesson already. Exodus 33 said this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, being God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This verse could also be, when it says we have seen his glory, it could also be, Remember this idea of blazing light, a shining light, right? It could be a literal reference to when John, with the two other apostles, saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. We've seen his glory. Like, I, I saw the flesh of Jesus peeled back for a moment, and I saw the glory of God in Jesus. So it could be a literal reference to the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took him with Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And what? His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. This blazing light. Or think of this last one, the return of Jesus in Revelation 19, right? It gives us an image of the heavens opening, which me, I, I, have, a, I have a bright image when I think of the heavens being opened. It talks about a white horse coming in, eyes like a flame of fire, the armies of heaven in fine white linen. All this constant imagery of a bright, bright light. So when we see glory physically manifested in the scripture, we see a blazing light. And in every instance of the glory, we see that there's just this sheer shock and the sheer force that shakes whoever beheld it to their core. Because it says it's the glory, whose glory? As of the only Son from the Father. So let me put it another way. John is saying this. He says, we saw his glory. We saw Jesus' mercy. We saw his wisdom. We saw his knowledge. We saw his holiness. We saw his patience. We saw it all. We saw his visible glory on the mountain. And the flesh of Jesus was peeled back for a moment. And we saw that visible glory. But 
maybe even more so, we saw his invisible glory in the way that Jesus lived his perfect life. We can point. We can say, that's it. Right there. And then it goes on to say, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And, and this is actually Old Testament language kind of just spun a little bit. But that in the, at the time, people would have been hearing this Old Testament language of similar to steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness is language that would communicate the covenant mercy of God. So John, speaking of the word about Jesus here, who's the only son from the Father, says he is full of grace and truth. So this God-man is tied to God's covenant mercy. Jesus, God's covenant mercy. John is tying these two ideas together over and over and over and over again. This man is fully man, fully God, and he has the weight of all of God's power to bring mercy. Okay, verse 14. Let's go to 15. It says this. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John the, the Baptist here is introduced, and he's doing what we're talking about. He's doing the pointing. He, he tried, he tried, he was trying to describe it as much as he could. But as soon as Jesus come, he goes, that's it. Right there. That's what I've been talking. I couldn't find the words, but that's it. He's come. That's the, that's the man that has come I've been trying to explain. All he could do was point at that moment. And it also, John gives us kind of some insight, saying that John the Baptist has kind of like fulfilled his mission here. If you look at John 1, 7, it says, he came as a witness, talking about John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So here it's saying that John did his job. John bore witness about him, cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And that last part is just saying he who comes after me, meaning that, yes, John, John the Baptist is saying, my ministry started first, but this man ranks before me because he has been the eternal word for all eternity. He is the word. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And as I was going through, what was helpful for me when I would read that last part, grace upon grace, was to replace it with just by saying grace in the place of grace. Grace in the place of grace, in the place of grace, in the place of grace. In Roman five, Romans 5, we hear about this justification by faith through grace. So if we are justified by faith through grace, where is that coming from? How is that possible? Well, from his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. If, if you are in Christ, this is where you stand. This is where you live. Grace upon grace. When God says, my grace is sufficient for you, in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he doesn't just mean for a little bit, right? When he says, my grace is sufficient for you, it is a forever sufficient. It doesn't run out. We will forever be dependent 
and he will forever be faithful to his people. Grace upon grace. As you sleep, as you drive, as you raise your kids in your addiction, in your depression, marital problems, even in death, there's grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace, in the place of grace. His grace is sufficient for you. Verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now there was truth in Moses' day, right? So it's not trying to say like the law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not saying that there wasn't truth in Moses' day. The first point that he's trying to make is that Jesus is above Moses. Remember the people he's talking to, the Israelites. That was a big statement. They tried to kill Jesus multiple times for this, right? Putting Jesus above Moses. So first thing John here is saying that, yes, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's the first point. But not to say that there wasn't truth. It's just saying that the fullness of the truth wasn't there yet. It was like John the Baptist trying to describe Jesus before seeing Jesus, right? It's the same thing. It, it wasn't there until he came and then he could point. It's, that's it. Now I see it. And similarly, but to, to the true fullness of the degree, there's going to come a day when with whatever scales we all have left on our eyes, they're going to be stripped away. And when we do, we are going to see the fullness of Jesus, the fullness of his grace and his truth and his beauty. And everything that we sought and everything that we thought had value and had beauty and glory, it's all going to be pointing to this man. And we're going to go, that's it. That's it. That's what my heart has been longing for. We will all experience this day. All of us. When we come and we see this man and we will know the Bible was right and true and that Jesus was right and the scriptures tells us as he says, be ready because he's coming soon. That's what the scriptures tell us. Be ready because he's coming soon. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. But the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, God has never been seen because he is without form, right? He is invisible. And if he were to physically manifest, as we just looked through a little bit ago, it would not go well for us as humans, right? We cannot behold the glory of God, the presence of God fully, and survive it. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So first of all, let's take the only God. We are monotheist, right? The, most of the whole Old Testament was God trying to teach his kindergartners, like, the Lord's your God, the Lord is one, right? You'll worship no other gods before me. He goes through the Shema, right? The Lord's your God, the Lord is one. The Lord's your God, the Lord is one, because they were trying to worship all these gods. So we are monotheists. We worship one God. But it says, 
the only God who's at the Father's side. So it sounds like we're talking about two all of a sudden. How does that work? We hold to the mystery of the faith the scriptures teaches. We are monotheists, but we hold that God is one essence and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hold and we sit in the tension and we preach to ourselves the mysteries of the faith every day. So when it says, who is at the Father's side, it's also really beautiful imagery that doesn't quite, doesn't quite get the depth of what it's trying to say here. Who is at the Father's side? Some um, translation said, in the bosom of the Father, which is kind of antiquated language now. But it, it just means folded into God, tucked so deeply and near and tight into the essence of God. So it says here, who is at the Father's side, He's folded into God, Jesus. He's affirming the divinity of Jesus once again. The incarnate Christ defines God. He has made him known. Who is he? The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word defines God. And it's much like defining the word glory, right? Where no one could truly know God because there was nothing tangible enough to point to. So that's why we needed Jesus. We had to see it. We had to have something to point to and say, this is it. This is is what I've been trying to explain and what I've been longing for, and I didn't even know it. This is it. We can now know God because we have seen how God has lived as a perfect man. And if you believe this and you know this to be true, Let's go back to John 1, 12 real quick. Then what? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Church, I'm, I'm so excited to just dig into this book further in the coming year. We're going to take it, and we're going to go much, much deeper, and I cannot wait for that. But let me just spoil a few things real quick, and we're going to jump to chapter 20, Okay. So we're going from 1 all the way to 20 really quick. And I want to do that because I want you to see why is John writing any of this? Why is he, what is his purpose, I should say? What is he trying to get out of this? And he's obsessed with this idea. We see it all through his writing. He says here in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's one. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you may have life in his name. That's why John is writing all of this. So in light of all of this, everything we have just waded through, Let's, let's just slowly read through this text one more time, and I want you to take this imagery with you as you read through it. So start from the beginning, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Excuse me. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we've all received. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I join in with John and all faithful believers, Lord, that I just plead alongside them that those who do not believe in Jesus would, would come to do so. That our restless hearts truly find rest in you. I pray that your word um, helps us grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you. Because, Lord, we have seen your glory through your son, Jesus. Now we have something to point to. <coughs> Would you help us? Help us live lives that cry out like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when these moments come, remind us, Lord, that we can point to them, speak loudly about them. Help us to build foundations around these memories so that when we look back, we can remember and we can know that you have always been faithful. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.